welcome to this episode of the Gig Harbor Flycast. And today we have George Cook, the Sage Rod Manufacturing Rep, uh, with us today. Is that your official title? What's your? Do you have a, an official Pacific title? Pacific Northwest Sage Farbank Rep. Farbank. All rep. three brands, as you well right. know, Sage, Rio, right. Reddington. But the one that counts. Well, they all count, good <laughs> sir. They all good. They all count. But uh, you know, Sage being the preeminent one, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay. But uh, really excited to talk about um, just uh, some funny stories and some some stuff from George. I uh, want to talk about spade casting. We'll talk about trout fishing. We'll t- I think we should talk about lake fishing too. We'll talk about lake we'll fishing. Yeah, we 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 have a rough draft of where we're going. So, but it'll be good where we're going. We know Why that. Uh, know, and then we're going to do a second episode where we're going to talk about some new stuff from Sage and Reddington, but not in this episode. We're not talking about any new stuff in this oh, episode. Oh, that's its own episode. That's its sir. own. That's its own. Cool. So, um, so George, you invented fly fishing, right? No. No, but you've been around since. I met one of the forefathers of things, though, when I was a little kid. When I was 11 years old, I met Joe Brooks Yeah. in uh, Last Chance, Idaho. I got him to sign my... Uh, freshly bought Joe Brooks trout fishing book. I've waltzed over at breakfast and asked Mr. Brooks if he'd sign my book, which he gladly did. So that was a pretty cool moment in time. Yeah. Yeah. And you were out fishing the Henry's Fork? I was Fork? fishing the Henry's Fork. When you were 11? Yep. Wow. My first day of fly fishing is a is a good one. I told this story here recently. Um, my mother worked at Henry's Lake Lodge, which was on Henry's Lake you know, which is part of Island Park. And um, I was 11. I had a fly rod. I had a very, uh, you know, rudimentary skill set. I was dropped off in last chance. 11-year-old Georgie was dropped off with a sandwich (laughs) and six green Drake dry fox. Six. I would need all six. Um, By 5 p.m., I was dropped off at 8 by a guide buddy of mine, an older guy. Dropped my dumb ass off. He said, I'll see you at 6. And here's your six green drakes. By 5 p.m., I had lost all six green drakes to pretty good rainbows on that ditch. I walked across the street to Will Godfrey's fly shop. Yeah. And I had just enough money in my 11-year-old pockets to buy two standard Adams walk back to the ditch, and continue the quest. That was day one. <laughs> day one. Your story, lad. That's, well, yeah, I mean, they're, your stories are unbelievable. <laughs> um, but So I was going to save this one for later, but we got it. I want to, we just got to have to jump into this one. So I was I was telling George this story about uh, being out on the Bitterroot River. And, um, and the, the thing that I appreciate about George is that he has nicknames for everything. And, uh, and, and I, um, I told him, I said, I saw the weirdest thing swim across the river that I've, I've just never seen before. And we were, we were floating the river with my family, and it was just starting to get dusk. Someone's going down, and we, we see a disturbance in the water, and all of a sudden, we see something moving across the water, and there's two bunny ears <laughs> go, go, going across. And he's like, oh, you saw Bun Bun? <laughs> he's like, I see Bun Bun. <laughs> So you got to you got to tell your bun bun experience that you, uh, from Alaska. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, a few years ago, my wife and I are fishing a on the Nishgak, which I've guided on the 1980s, and I I tend to go up there every year for the King Run, Spay Rod game, 
and we've got a particular spot that we call Bug Island. And it's called Bug Island for a reason because once you are out of the water and on the island, you will be killed by bugs. <laughs> I mean, it is death by a thousand cuts if it exists anywhere. And one day we're coming down the run, and I and it's an island in the river, and the river's huge. And I hear this splashing sound. And as a former Alaska guide, and I've hunted Alaska extensively, I thought, <laughs> what's on the other side of the river? Because A, I can hear it, and it's clearly in the water. And I'm on an island, or I'm near an island, which means the island is our separator. And I thought, it's boo-boo. It's got to be boo-boo. <laughs> Boo-boo's <laughs> coming to visit. Or maybe it's a moose or possibly a caribou. And so I, my wife hears it, and I get out of the water, and she goes, you're going to walk over there? And I go, might as well see what's coming. <laughs> and uh, I walk over there, and it's the islands. You know, it's, it's 25 yards across, and I don't get but halfway across. And here is a snowshoe hare swimming towards the bank he spots me and he does a u-turn and <laughs> swims out and around to the next island up and i go back and tell her this and i'm sure she thinks i'm as full of shit as a christmas goose but i said it was bun bun he was coming and he detoured and he's up on the next island so if you don't believe me you can go up there and find him but he was swimming and he was making enough noise to bend a small bear so that's my bun bun story. <clears throat> when you you ha used more nicknames when you told me the story originally because you were fishing for you're fishing for Kingy. Bo Bobo. Fishing, no, no Kingy King for Kingy. Yeah, on the so niche. do you have a nickname for for Moose? Moosey. Moosey, just Moosey. Good old Moosey. Just Moosey. We get them in the backyard all the time at the anchorage. Yeah. House. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you weren't fishing for Bobo. Well, Bobo, it's a, you know I do fish plenty for Bobo. I was in Idaho last week fishing for Bobo, and I oh. caught a big Bobo, yeah. which we're not even going to show anybody. It's yeah. so big. Do you want to tell the story about no, that one? Just, no, just giant Bobo. It is giant Bobo. 25 pounds. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's, that's not a... That's not fake news, folks. I, I've seen that's, the yeah. picture. I don't yeah. know. It might have been photoshopped. Yeah, I don't know. It looked more like a BC steelhead than a yeah. rainbow, but yeah. it was, giant, it was giant. pretty darn, darn Career big. Career fisher. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so critters of, get nicknames. All, so all you've critters. been, career-wise, career, career -wise, you've been in the fly fishing industry for a, a, a few years. Uh, you started off with, with Coffins, and I had, someone talked about Coffins the other day. Um, who was it? Oh, I had a customer. Uh, we were out in Forks. And um, and their comment, they were like, your shop reminds me of Kaufman's. I'm like, I'll take that as a compliment. Yeah, roll with it. I mean, sure, well, I'll, I'll go with that. But uh, so you, you started working at Kaufman's, I mean, this is like in the 80s, right? 1982. Um, but if we take a step back, Blake, um, I taught fly casting on a university level at Washington State University. And when I you were 11. No, <laughs> no. When I was in college yeah. at Washington State at Harvard West, <laughs> and uh, uh, when we weren't drinking, which was a fair amount of the time over there in Cougville, uh, we actually did go to class, and I got to teach class, and I taught this class under Dave Ingerbretson, who at the time was the Western editor of Fly Fisherman Magazine, and I'd seen Dave. On the Henry's Fork. I, I saw a lot of famous people on the Henry's Fork. Yeah. 
I saw, I would typically see Dave Ingerbretson every year. I'd see Ernie Schwiebert. I'd see Doug Swisher. I'd, you know, it was like the MLB All-Star game of fly fishing that you could witness during the green Drake catch on the Henry's Fork. And, uh, you know, I fished there for years. I, I fished there from the time I was 11 till I think I was 25. Every wow. year, every summer, never missed one. So I was somewhat of a child authority on. Do the you still go sport. back? Oh yeah, when I'm over there, I'm there. Okay. Yeah, when I get a, when I'm over in that part of the country, and I was there definitely during the heyday of the big big fish. Um, you know, I saw some things that, you know, were pretty memorable in terms of big fish yeah. and opportunity with dry fly, uh, fishing. But nevertheless, one day I walked into Dave Ingerbretson's. Um, his office at Washington State, he taught anatomy and fly fishing. And I waltzed into his office uh, one um, fall and knocked on his door. He let me in. And I said, uh, Mr. Ingebrets, and I, I know who you are. I see you on the Henry's Fork every year, right down there by the fence and in the entrance to the what's called the railroad ranch. And I said, you ever thought about having a TA, teacher's assistant for your class, your fly fishing class. He looks at me and he says, nope, but I think it's a good idea. I'll see you in February. So I proceeded to be his TA for three straight years Wow! in that, which didn't hurt my resume of which I handed to Randall Kaufman sure. uh, in that in that time period to, to get a summer job at Kaufman's. Yeah. And I would go on to work for at Kaufman's for the Kaufman brothers. And my sales manager at Sage, my longtime sales manager, it seems like I've I've known him since I was thirteen and I've worked for him my entire adult life, Mr. Mark Bale, uh smartest smartest man I know, um, was my manager there. He's my manager at Sage. Um I reckon I could say he's stalking me or he could say I'm stalking him. <laughs> For, you know, good Lord, 30-plus years. Yeah. So we had quite quite the crew at Kaufman's. Um, Mark was there then, Bill Martz, myself, um, John Farrar, you know, the originator of the Snap T-Cast uh, globally. Hmm. We were all there at once. You know, John Kovich, who's uh, a rep and heavily involved in the uh, – travel business your your cuba trip is yeah. often you know led by him yeah he worked there so you know kaufman's at one time i used to call it the triple a baseball affiliate of, of fly fishing <laughs> oh man you've mentioned baseball now twice and it's like each time it almost brings a tear to my eye with uh, the whole coronavirus thing it it's delaying the start of baseball and it's killing me well it's killing um, me it's giving the mariners more time to get ready <laughs> <laughs> to not have a 70 win season and yeah. maybe somehow get to 90 yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. I, have, yeah. I have tickets for uh, that are for a game coming up april 13th against the nationals but uh the champs it ain't happening that that's not happening well so. that game will probably come to pass and you'll get to go i went to one game last year yeah um in the month of september when they uh retired ichiro oh yeah and it cool. was it was awesome I yeah mean, they did an awesome presentation a big screen film of 
nothing but Etro highlights. Yeah. They had Edgar, they had Junior, they had Buner. They were all there. It was a, it was a fantastic night at the ballpark. I believe they played the White Sox and they won that night. I yeah. think they won. I think it was either one zero or two one. Yeah, it it's super exciting. Yeah, oh, it was awesome. Yeah, it's fat. Okay, so you're a Mariners fan. Oh, you got to be. Oh, true okay. to the blue. Right. Yeah, love it, love it. Yeah. So I mean, I'm enjoying watching their their young guys that they have. You know, well, that's, they have some promise. Yeah, they've got it's, some. They got a bunch. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but this isn't a baseball podcast. <laughs> all right, all it's, right. it's fly fishing. Um, okay, so you mentioned the snap team. I uh, I actually had a spay client recently that had uh, had been on a trip with a, uh, a a guide, and this guide was all over him because he wasn't doing the spay cast correctly the way that he invented it um and who might and well wait we don't even need to get into that but um because it was was really it was a really funny conversation that we had but um but man you've been involved in spay casting since like the beginning of skagit style you know type of stuff right yeah so um i mean but you know i think a lot of us that are into spay casting that have been uh you know that have been into it since um you know maybe the last 5 10 15 years you know fairly disconnected from a lot of those uh the kind of the story of the beginnings of that i mean share a little bit about how i mean how that kind of started in our area and how that developed and some you know some of the some of the players you know i mean uh, i was re- recently rereading deck's uh book a passion for steelhead and um and it was just great to like read about uh, him, him talking about some of the, you know, he mentions you a couple different times in yeah. there about just kind of developing casts and, and different lines and sync tips and like kind of all this different stuff sure. with what, what you guys had to deal with, with the rods and the technology that you had at the time. Um, and it's come so far since then, you know, so mega, um, it's mega, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, well, sure. I'll give you some background. So, you know, deck, Deck was, you know, really part, the tip of the spear, if you will. Him and a, a small group of dedicated steelheaders. And uh, what's interesting with Deck, he'll probably get a kick out of it if, if he sees this. I'll make sure he sees it. Um, he was working at Boeing, and I had him on a guide trip. I guided him and Scott O'Donnell which both of them had been in the Navy, and they were post-military service. Deck was at Bowen. I forget what Scott was doing. He was probably, you know, eating Top Ramen and Steelhead and him and Ed Ward both, you know. But um, I, I guided the, those two guys on the Isaac Branch in Eastern Washington, Back to the Wall is the name of it nowadays. And both of them were ready to make a breakaway from – the public sector to the guide sector. And I had the good fortune of guiding those two. And they were character. I mean, they are characters, both of them. Absolutely both of them. Um, and uh, they they both had the classic sailor's mouth, particularly Scott. And um, I saw two guys that were ready to break free and to go give the guide game a go. And they, this was 1989, if I remember right. I'm pretty sure it was 89. And they both, they were talking about it, talking about it, and they both did it. 
and they jumped out of that sector into the guide sector, both of them. And deck, decks accelerated very quickly. Scott's was a little slower, but Scott's, you know, on the back end would be a huge trajectory. Scott would um, make a huge name for himself, both in Washington State and Oregon, as well as Alaska. And still guiding to this day yeah. in Oregon, in the state of Alaska. And um, this coincided with the Spay, the Spay game. Jimmy Green, uh, you know, a, a Fenwick fame, a great advisor to Don Green, the founder, co-founder of Sage. You know, Jimmy was over there on the Grand Ron and the main stem snake, uh, getting the Spay thing started. And the, the early roots to the Spay thing here in Washington State, was coming out of British Columbia, largely from a guy named Mike Maxwell. And the influence here started to really show up around 1990, 91. And at that time, tackle was, you know, rods weren't a problem. We had rods. Sage was making rods. TNT was making spay rods at that time. Those were probably your two main players um were most of those for the international market like, absolutely yeah. they, they okay. were scandinavia united kingdom aimed you know be it norway be it yeah. iceland you know you know pick pick your country on the map over there and they were dominated by 14 foot nine weights 15 foot 10 weights rods that today you would rarely if ever see i mean you could be on your olympic peninsula guide season blake and maybe not see a single 14.9, a 91.40, or a 10.150. You'd see eight weights. You'd see yeah. sevens. You'd see the odd six. You might see a short nine. But you wouldn't see these behemoth sticks that the game started with. A yeah. 91.40, a 14 for nine, was the most common steelhead rod the first five years of the steelhead spay revolution in, in Washington, Oregon. Um it's probably been a couple of years since I've, yeah, maybe two years since I've seen one. We have customers that bring them into the shop every once in a while. Yeah, they're they're like, still oh, got I, one. I got this thing, you know, from a buddy or used or whatever. And and that's what we were lugging around. I mean, a 9140 was your default hmm. steelhead stick. And it, it could have been on the Skycomas, the Socks, Gadget, oh, you know, somebody going to the Deschutes, Grand Ron, mm -hmm. Idaho's Clearwater. That was your rod. And your lines were the limitation. Hmm. The lines were the limitation. And in 1992, Jim Vincent, the founder of Rio, Rio yeah. um, brought a line to the table called a wind cutter. A wind cutter. And like a lot of the spay lines of today, that line was hatched in what I call the, uh, you know, the, the line doctors working late nights in the depths of their garage with various tools that they could splice things together you know in between scotch they could do these things and the wind cutter came to the table in 1992 as a 53 foot spay line with an interchangeable tip system the very first ones were full floaters i had my mitts i traded a guy a guy from Boulder, Colorado, by the name of Dr. Cliff Watts. And virtually, you know, only a percentage of people 
that listen or see this podcast will know who that guy is. But if you go back enough issues in Fly Fisherman magazine, you will see a cover of a guy with a cowboy hat holding a 28, 30-pound steelhead from the Skeena system. If you go back enough covers, mm. you'll run into this, and that's Cliff Watts. Brought out a fairly famous fly that Umpqua has called a kilowatt. Yeah. And I got him to build me three lines for the spay rod of his choice. Worst monetary trade of my life, but I got something that was basically unattainable. I got <laughs> three wind cutters, and I got them in different sizes to run on a 6126, a 7126, and a 9140 rod. And so I had these, I had these lines that were tomorrow's line today. When was this? 1992. 92. Summer wow. 92. I made this infamous trade. Infamous trade. It would even shock the sports world that I gave up that rod for those lines. <laughs> but, but those lines took us from running around with double tapers, double taper 9 or 10. Yeah. Or the, the Wolf Company, um, Royal Wolf Company, um, the legacy of Lee Wolf, yeah. had a line called, it was a triangle taper spay. And it was pretty good. It was actually, I think it was an 83-foot taper, if I remember right. And that line was actually showing some pretty good promise. But none of these lines, till the wind cutter, yeah. were bringing us the ability to throw sink tips. And once that wind cutter showed up, 53-foot taper, a loop at 15 feet. And then on the commercial deal, you had a loop at, at 30 feet. And so we played conventional 15-foot tips off that first interchangeable section. Now we were rifle hunting. Yeah. Okay, so for, we for people listening hunting. in that, um, you know, they're like, they hear 53, 80, I mean, and, the, and they don't understand why that's, why that's a deal. Um, uh, I love talking with you about fly line tapers and stuff like that. I mean, what, so why why was that such an important uh, shift with that line being at 53 instead of double tapers or the taper and, and all that kind of stuff? I mean, like when we talk about tapers and ease of casting and stuff like that, I mean, you know. Well, if you think about just the easy way to take any angler, fly fisherman, and say, okay, well, what what did all this mean? So in single-handed rods, if you, if you go back to, you know, let's go back to sometime in the 70s. You had level fly lines. That was my first fly that line. That was my first fly line that I was <laughs> running around and, on a Henry's fork with yeah. on a South Bend fly rod, which was actually a combo spin fly rod that I had the fly rod handle in with a weight forward. It wasn't even a weight forward. It was level six. Line. Yeah. But it was good enough. I could cast X distance, and I was in the ball game, right? Yeah. But you had a level line which today would be a running line for some shooting head of right. some sort, right. if at all. You had double tapers, if yeah. you could find one. And you had some level of weight forward lines out there, although they had really not super hit the bullseye yet. But a weight forward is the most common fly line sold in any fly shop globally today. Yeah, easily. So if you take that concept that you've got this aggressive head and that head could be 30 feet, could be 34 or 5 feet, could be 38, could be 48. But let's just say, you know, a pronounced head 
this idea had come to spay lines in the form of the wind cutter. And so, so to be clear, what we're talking about is the plastic that is that is of the fly line has a has a thickness difference that changes. Well, it has a tape. It has okay. it tapers, and yeah. so because um, so some people don't realize that fly lines actually change diameter yes. down the length of the line, um, and and for different purposes, it creates of a taper presentation okay. and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, in a weight forward manner, is going to give you the most projected ability to cast uh, beyond common trout flies, okay? It certainly will cast common trout flies, but it'll throw streamers, it'll throw bass bugs, it'll throw various saltwater endeavor, you know, and in the spay theater, we had to find some way to throw sink tips for starters and steelhead flies, which at that time you know, were common things. It could have been something traditional like a Skycoma Sunrise, a polar yeah. shrimp, or maybe the popsicle, which, you know, as you know, yours truly sitting here yeah. came up with. And those flies were the winter steelhead flies of that era. But that group of guys, Deck, Edward, Scott O'Donnell, Scott Howell, Darth Vader himself, um, and, you know, Mike Kinney, John Farrar, Jim Vincent, all these guys, John Hazel, Mark Bachman down in Oregon, these guys were putting together Jerry French. You know, I've got to be careful not to miss one of these guys or I'll get a knock on the door, right? Right. Um, these guys were at the forefront of both spay line development as well as fly development. So the wind cutter that Jim Vincent brought to the table opened up spay rods to become very practical steelhead tools and then would, you know, would show up in BC and Alaska for Chinook. Yeah. But it also set the stage for sink tip lines, which previously the spay rod had been confined to either a full floating or God forbid, you know, a, a full sinking line that, you know, were popular in Europe but really too arduous to even really think about is, is true Northwest uh, spay lines, um, even though they were successful in Europe, but it certainly wasn't what we were looking for. And there's, I could go into reasons why things differ between Atlantic salmon angling and steelhead Chinook angling in terms of presentation, mending, not mending, mending upstream to slow fly, mending downstream to speed up fly. Needless to say, a full sinking line um, had complications. So the wind cutter opened up a weight forward taper in a spay line, opened up the sink tip avenue, which certainly opened up winter steel heading at a level that had not been hmm. accomplishable with a spay rod, was still the favorite territory of a nine and a half foot, 10 foot, eight weight with a good old teeny 300 grain sink tip on it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the Skagit line would become the huge revolution. The revolution. What year did, was, what year was that? Two, well, that that group of those guys I talked about. Yeah, you know, deck. Okay, well, commercially available. Commercially available, December, two thousand two. The constituents are trying to check in. Um, two th December two thousand two. I remember standing in baggage claim, in Dallas, Texas getting ready to drive to Kansas for the Kansas Rifle Whitetail Opener. 
This is an important date. And I've got Jerry Swanson, the buyer from Kaufman's, mm-hmm. my alma mater. Yeah. Going, trying to give me an order. And I'm scrambling to find any sort of piece of paper and a pen in baggage claim in Dallas to write down an order that inevitably I needed that pen plus another pen because it was fixing to hit. And those lines hit late December, January, so December 2002, January 2003. And now it was on. It was a fixing to be on like Donkey Kong. Yeah. We had a schedule line. We could really throw sink tips, but what we could really do was those same lads who had brought the Skagit to life, the chop shop artist, the inner sanctum. Those guys were bringing the intruder fly to the table at the same time. Now, granted, the intruder was held as, you know, this, you know, state secrets. You know, like, no, it said Fort Knox, and no one's getting into Fort Knox, right? I mean, to the point where Scott Howe and Ed Ward would famously, you know, see you coming down the riverbank, cut it off into the pocket, (laughs) standing there. Really? Holding a flyless spay rod. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. No, these guys, these guys were keeping this out of not just public view, but any view. Yeah. You know, this into the pocket. I mean, these guys did this and did it for quite a while. Hmm. But we were going to have to have a scheduling line, which is why the Chop Shop boys had been working on it. Why Ed Ward had been working on it. Why Scott Howell, Donald, all these guys. You know, Mike Kinney, all of them. And they were all up there guiding on the sock and gadgets, so they were Jerry French, all of them. You know, they were kind of a close-knit community, you know. And so that Skagit line was a byproduct of the intruder. The intruder was a byproduct of the Skagit line. And those things would, would come on board. And now, as Scott O'Donnell once famously said, that I rattle off all the time in talks, is Scott, you know, stood around and said, we're fishing plug water now, boys. <laughs> and so the Spangler went from fishing just classic runs. Yeah. That were always there, were always productive, to looking at water that you know was really gear water, and now we had a crack at gear water, because we could we could fish sink tips, the heaviest ones out there, which would lead to heavier ones being available, T14, mm-hmm. and that group, with this new fly, that was an intruder with large barbell eyes, that would sink yeah. and sink big time. And was tied in such a way to sink and swim and do everything that we all take for granted in that pile of steelhead flies you got out there in those trays. Yeah. So there's the roots. I mean, I've I've had people say to me, you know, Scott Halby and one, that George, your popsicle and your showgirl and your blue moon kind of set the stage for this, and, and maybe it did. It certainly was revolutionary in Alaska in 1982, 83, 84, 85. But the intruder has revolutionized winter steelhead fishing, summer Chinook fishing, no doubt. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Man, I feel like I just got a PhD in spay history. You did. (laughs) That's 101. There's 202 through 505. Sign up today. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I mean, uh, just to pick your brain a little bit on on sink tips, um, you know, we we sell a lot of the mo tips. 
do you fish the motips or do you do you prefer do you kind of custom cut your own stuff well i i can give a class on custom cut right so and maybe i'll mention that here in a minute but the mo's which a lot of people just don't realize what what does mo mean well you know so for the for the tentative mo means mo shit for you but what <laughs> mo really means is mike McCune, yeah the m scott o'donnell the o the w ed ward m-o-w or as i call them the three spaketeers those guys brought this idea to the table and when and what had happened was again the chop shop artists were at work developing these things and what those guys found out which which others of us found out independently but didn't take it as far as they did is that on a spay rod regardless of size generally speaking you can take trout spay and you can play a seven seven and a half foot sink dip where you custom cut t8 you could play seven and a half on trout spay maybe on a switch rod as a baby spay but once you hit a conventional spay rod, let's just call that 12 feet north, 12 to 15. The minute you play a sink tip under nine feet, you have a boomerang in your hand. It's going to do some weird stuff out there. It's going gonna, it's gonna to crash. It's going to do what we call the tumble where the sink tip hits and the head kind of rolls up past it. And you, you start to question, do you even know how to cast? And you know, you, you thought you knew how to cast, but the, the way this thing would lay out would just make you question that. So what those boys were first to the table with was the idea that we want some shorter sink tips. We want a seven and a half foot critter. We want a five foot critter. We want a little sneaky two and a half footer. Well, the only way to get those sink tips to function cast wise was to create something off a common denominator. Well, we know nine foot will cast. A nine foot sink tip will cast off a sink tip. Once you drop below nine, squirrely. 10 feet, cast even better. So those guys were, and, and they are, you know, we as anglers owe a huge level of debt to those guys for what they brought to the table. And to some degree, continue to bring to the table. 10 foot was a common denominator. So by splicing seven and a half foot, five foot, two and a half feet of sink tip to an appropriate length of floating line to hit a common denominator at 10 feet, hence seven and a half by two and a half, five by five, two and a half by seven and a half, blah, blah, blah. We could have these little sneaky sink tips. And these don't things. those tips help like new anglers too? Because I think I think of like with the spay cast being uh, a fixed length cast compared to the the single hand cast, which is a variable length cast. That fixed length cast, when you're a newer angler and you're you're you have anchor placement and you're you're creating that D loop and all that stuff, um, it it feels like for those new anglers, uh, if they if they change from a ten foot to a five five or you. Know, it keeps that cast that that stroke more consistent now i mean depth of water you know that sure. is going to alter things but i feel like it it takes a variable out for those newer anglers to just that are just learning the spay cast it, it you know that just kind of helps simplify things for them a little bit well blake you guide a lot so you've got a bird's eye view of that now 
what George will tell you on that one is that the 12 and a half foot mo tip, which is the the longest yeah. critter in the group, is fundamentally the best casting at 12 and a half. It's better than 10. And frankly, the old historical 15 foot Rio sink tips are the best casting sink tips in the history of planet Earth. And the reason why they are is they're tapered. They're 15 feet, but they're tapered. And 129 grain, 150 grain type 6 is a fantastic sink tip from a castability standpoint. And typically, because that, that tip's a little longer at 12 and a half or 15 feet, the stick... The stick tends to really come in and tends to work for most people most of the time. But really the Mo thing, if you, you know, because when they first came out, you know, Rio agreed to take that for a one-time royalty to that group, to three spanketeers. I called Mike McCune, you know, the M and Mo. And I said, bud, you got to lay this on me. You got to lay the strategical initiative of what these things really are on me because we've got 15 foot sink tips. We've got them in intermediate. We got them in type three, type six. And I think we had type eight as well at that time. So between those densities, we could do a lot of things that sounded like these things were going to be the same idea. Turns out the Mo's were a better idea. So McCune. I spoke to Mike, and he talked about places, both in Oregon, Washington, and I would find out Alaska, which would be my first use of the Moe's, that where these things were completely strategical. A good example was water on the Grand Ron in both the Oregon and Washington side, and as I would find out, water on the Rogue down southern Oregon where say you had a five by five mo, five feet of floating, five feet of sinking, and say it was a mo medium, which is based on T11, or a mo heavy, which is based, and if mo's were rap singers, heavy mo would be your man, okay? But say you had the heavy, which is T14, the, the strategical use of this thing would be a cast that would hit and immediately, much like my, hopefully you can see this on camera, that becomes what's going on is yeah, that my hinge. forearm, the blue jacket, is the floater, and that's my hand is the five foot tip, and that thing hits, down it goes, because there's a lot of watersheds where there's ledge rock. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Umpqua is an obvious one, but there's stuff, you know, the sole duck is somewhat of a, an example of this, not necessarily in true ledge rock volcanic that you see in some of these other deals but still slots to think of it as slots and you get on a broad steelhead run a classic you know head body tail well we can we can throw long cast mend and swing across that because those fish could be anywhere in that from the head to the tail and it could be three feet in front of you or 103 feet Mm -hmm. out from you right but a lot of these spots where you're dealing with ledge rock and slots, umpqua, the fish are in those slots. Yeah. And you don't have all this, you don't have the big mend and let this thing, 
um, you know, engage and come across in this classic. Well, you better have a lot of flies with you if you do. Yeah. Well, yeah, because, <laughs> well, that's going to bring up point number two in a minute. But what, what that mode did was allow that thing to hit, hit, engage. Yeah. Maybe not a big mend because we've got X slot. The slot could literally be this table we're mm -hmm. at. And once your fly's out of that slot, your fly just left the stadium. The yeah, stadium is that slot. And so those guys had sorted this out, and it was brilliant. It was just nothing short of brilliant. And what I found with a Mo, just in, you like stories, Blake, so here's one. Yeah. So I fish a knack-knack a lot in Bristol Bay, Alaska. And, and I have fished it all times of the year. I have fished it in late March when the water's at its lowest. I have fished it in June when water's at its near highest. And I have fished it in the fall where it could kind of do either, okay? And when you fish it in late March, you see parts of the river that you, you have never seen before. If you've only been there in June or August or October, what you're seeing in March, you have physically never seen. A, it's low. B, things are exposed. So boulder fields, rock gardens. Okay, Bobo likes rock gardens. Steely, steely. So for people that really don't know the Naknik, it's this is a large river that flows out of a lake, and these are lake, these are fish that come these out of the resident lake. resident rainbows and lake run rainbows, and the lake run rainbows size wise might as well be steelhead. Yeah, they're steelhead size. They're they're steelhead sure. size yeah. rainbows, and the, you know it's in its in its own way it's the Great Lakes of Alaska, right? So, but the point being is in March I was seeing structure that I had never seen in June, nor October, or September, didn't matter, but I was seeing things. And what I saw in March, I, I then put into action in June. And I, I recall the first time I ever fished a mo. I fished a two and a half by seven and a half, seven and a half foot sinking, which mm -hmm. is my favorite one. Yep. And I knew this run, and I knew this thing was a rock garden. I knew it was because I had seen it. I'd seen it at low. And I knew if I went in there with a 15-foot sink dip, which I'd done in years past in June, primo, mm -hmm. it was getting hung up. Didn't really know why I was getting hung up, other than I was getting hung up. But I would figure out that the rock garden. So that 15-foot tip is going in there, and it's draping. It's the big. It's a big drape, right? And it's coming in there, and you know, let's find something. You know, here's here's a pretend boulder. Okay. Here's the pretend boulder, and the boulder's like that, right? Well, that sink tip is coming in there, and yeah, because it's usually not your fly hung up; it's your sink tip, right? Right. Um, and then when you pull. You're hung up with the sink tip. You pull it. Now you put your fly in there. Now you double hung Right. Up. Now you start to cry a little yeah, now, bit. Now we're fixing to have some loss. <laughs> so the beauty of the Mo is that the Mo in that at higher water, the Mo doesn't come in there like this, like the 15-foot sink tip. The Mo comes in there like this. And it kind of, it may hit those rocks, but because it's five feet or seven and a half feet of tip, it kind of hits and dribbles over, and it goes in there, and it probes, and it does stuff. 
The other thing it does, which I would learn in Alaska, is that you also, you not only got to fish this boulder garden here, but as your fly swung into the bank directly below you in relatively shallow water, let's call it two to four feet, that fly was still swimming. Mm-hmm. Whereas with that 15-foot sink tip, by the time that fly got directly below you in that swing, it was bottomed out, and it's digging. Yeah. In fact, it might dig to the point when it got there, you just ripped it in just so you could not be dragging and getting gack on your fly and having to deal with that. Yeah. So, you you know, I caught a 29-and-a-half-inch rainbow in this particular run that I'd seen in March. I was back on opening day in June, and I was fishing a mo. Now, the $64 question is, Blake, did that fish, was he laying behind one of those boulders, and he followed that fly all the way in and ate it straight below me, which he did, or was he laying there? But... The mo was the answer based on either yeah. idea because if he followed it from here to eat here, then my fly didn't get hung up here. It passed through and allowed him the sight picture to go follow it. Yeah. Or if he was laying there, it was still swimming where he was laying. Yeah. So either way, it was a win-win. Yeah. And so the mo, the mo system, the whole thing is nothing but brilliant. That came out of those three guys. Wait, so when did that come out? Like 2008, right 2009? Right uh, I think it was, I think it was 2007 or eight. You know, I mean, we could go check, but it was somewhere, somewhere right around there. there. Yeah. So it's it's been around. Oh, for, it's had a decade plus. Yeah. Yeah. And we've now got longer ones. We've got mo longs, sure. which are 15 foot, you know, animals that are based off that that same yeah. grouping. Right. Um, and to some degree, those cast better. Because, again, 15 feet tends to be a fairly kind of magic number in terms of line, stick, and layout. But So with a 15-foot tip, um, I, I, I have fished 15-foot tips a bit. Um, I've definitely fished just tea material more and, and a lot of 10-foot tips. Sure. Um, but it seems like the 15-foot tips really, really shine on rods that are at a length of 13 and a half. Um, I mean, or what would you say as far as rod length? Because I mean, you probably don't want to throw a 15 foot tip on a 12 foot rod. Um, or well, maybe you could, depending on what on head, paper, is, on, head on is on paper, there. One would, one could say that. In reality, because those 15 foot tips, those conventional, you know, Rio refers to them as replacement tips. At mm-hmm. one time, we called them accessory tips. They originally came out to support what was called the Versi tip yeah. single-handed line. And then they morphed into the wind cutter grouping and the wind cutter set and blah, blah, blah. It's been with us a long time. Right. They're tapered. And you think about 15 feet and you think, man, maybe that's a little long. If it wasn't tapered, meaning you take that T11 and yeah. cut 15 feet, that's a different animal than a tapered animal. Right. And I even throw them off. You know, baby space switch rods. Mm-hmm. You know, eleven foot, eleven foot four, eleven foot six, eleven foot nine switch rods, which to me, for me, are baby spay. I'll throw those pups off that, and they work because they're tapered. So then, so anglers need to make sure that they're looping on the the correct end of the of the tip, the replacement. Tips. Well, the good news is with those conventional ones, I think they're, they're well. They're only looped on the right end, so you're good. 
can't screw that up. Oh, okay. Plus, there's a color code. So a type three will have yellow. Yeah. Uh, type six. I think on the old ones, though, the old ones had like bars, lines on them. Correct. Right. Well, and that made it a little bit more. Yeah, but they still had color. The bars. Yeah. The bars signify size, meaning a big bar meant five, and little bars. And it was like Morse so a big code bar. Well, here's yeah. what it meant: a big bar was five. Yeah. Followed by four little bars. Five plus four equals nine. nine. Even the Wazoo student can figure that out. <laughs> What's nine mean? Nine weight. Nine weight at 15 feet is 129 grains. So there was a method of the madness. Yeah. And Jim Vincent being a perfectionist uh, and, and, you know, really a brilliant um, professor of the game, he marked these lines. Yeah. And he marked them by the colors. So the yellow on the brownish olive looking tip, yellow meant type three. And block dot, dot, dot meant nine. What's nine? Nine equates to grain weight, which in that case, 129 grains. And there's a little charts for this that actually, yeah. you know, come on the back of the sink tip. So, you yeah, know, or even in the little sink tip wallet. Yeah, yeah, little, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, um, yeah, those fifteen foot. I've never been able to memorize are, any of this. I, I'm, I always have to look at the stupid thing. I'm like, I'm like, I've looked at it so many times. My eyes have worn holes through the paper, but like, I still have to. Yeah. <laughs> look at well, it's I couldn't memorize anything <laughs> in college, but I got all this now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh man. Okay, so George, we have a lot more to talk about because we have some really fun stuff uh, with talking oh, about I see new something product. On there I can't wait for. Yes. No. We're gonna get into that, but. Um, but we've been chatting for a bit. So uh, so thanks for joining us on this episode. Hey, for um, for those of you listening in, um, this video or this podcast is also available on YouTube uh, as an interview. And uh, George and I will be right back to talk about uh, some new stuff that's coming out from Reddington and Sage. And we're going to talk about... Um, the Panther. And we're going to talk about the Panther. Uh, he, he has the largest... Cat, cat captivity. Captivity. That's captivity. <laughs> so we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, we'll talk about, uh, but you're not just into the spay game, even though you're like really known for that. You actually do a lot of lake fishing and trout fishing and saltwater stuff. Bassy. And, and, and bass. My boy Bassy. Yeah. Wait, so okay. So we'll we're gonna hit we're gonna hit stop on this. Thanks for uh, for joining us today. Check out our next episode when we talk about some new product that's coming out as well as uh, some other fun stuff like the Panther and Bassie.